Take your copy of God's Word, open it again, excuse me, to Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. Mark, chapter 4, verses 35 through 41 is our text today. Mark 4, 35 to 41. Uh, If you're using one of the uh, black covered Bibles uh, under a seat uh, in front of you, you should find Mark chapter 4 on page 788, Mark 4, 35 to 41. Um, I've done this on, I don't know, a few occasions, maybe not several. It might be approaching several after today, but one of, it's not my favorite book in the world, but certainly my favorite passage of any book, not the Bible, in the world comes from C.S. Lewis's classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Many of you are familiar with this book. If you're not, go buy a box set of The Chronicles of Narnia at your local bookstore or online today and start reading. By the way, the first book to read is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I don't care what order it comes to you in the box set, start with Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There are people of varying convictions about what order to read them in. That doesn't matter for this morning. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know the story. The four Pevensey children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, find their way into another realm, a land called Narnia, through a magical wardrobe in the home of a caretaker that they have gone to live with uh, during, uh, essentially, the, the attack on the United Kingdom during World War II. And as they're there in Narnia, they they find that the whole land is overcome by this insurmountable, seemingly permanent winter that is held in place by the White Witch. Edmund gets to know the White Witch, and he is uh, quickly taken in by her and and falls under her sway. Uh, Peter, Susan, and Lucy uh, do not ever encounter the White Witch, Not, not early on in the story, but later they do. But at one point in time, all four Pevensey children find themselves in Narnia, and they are making their way through this land. Lucy has made a friend in Narnia when she went there the first time by herself, a little fawn by the name of Mr. Tumnus. Mr. Tumnus has gone missing Uh, presumed held captive by the white witch herself. And so the four Pevensey children are making their way through the frozen land of Narnia to find and help Mr. Tumnus if they can. Along the way, they come into contact with two beavers, aptly named Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are not ordinary beavers. They're large and they talk. And they take the four Pevensey children into their dam and they feed them, uh, warm them by the fire, uh, help them to get ready for the journey that is yet ahead. And while they're there warming themselves by the fire and talking together about the journey that awaits them, they start talking, the beavers start talking about someone named Aslan. A question comes up by the four children, who is this Aslan? When they hear his name, they're strangely warmed in their hearts as though though his name carries some sort of deeper meaning. They want to know more about who this Aslan is. And so sitting there by the fire, Lucy, the youngest, asks Mr. Beaver, is Aslan, is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the king, don't, don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Oh, that you will, dearie, and make no, make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Well, then, isn't he safe, said Lucy. 
Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Aslan, the lion who represents Jesus, the Christ, in so many ways in the story, is not safe, but he is good. He's not safe, but he is good. In Mark 4, verses 35 to 41, we come to a time in the life of Jesus and his disciples where the disciples, along with Jesus, enter into a very unsafe predicament, dangerous, even life-threatening. And the question becomes, what will Jesus do for his disciples as they seem to be perishing? It's demonstrated, obviously, I think, by this text that, that Jesus is not safe. He calls his disciples into difficult places. The question is, is he good? Is he powerful? Is he, is he going to be helpful in times of great trial? In this scene in Mark's gospel, in the life of Jesus, there at sea, in the middle of a storm, Jesus demonstrates by his command of the wind and waves as he calms the storm. Many of you have already read the subtitle in your Bibles. You know where we're going this morning. In calming the wind and the waves, Jesus demonstrates that he is the divine son of God who calls for faith from his disciples. He is the Messiah who is not safe, but who is surely good and certainly powerful. The key idea, main idea of this text for us this morning is that Jesus is, this is what Mark is teaching us, Jesus is the God of creation who can be trusted with every one of life's fears. He may not be safe, but he is certainly good. This morning, I hope that we would take courage and exercise faith in Christ as we see him in his word this morning. Even though the path of discipleship is often fraught with danger, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, will be faithful to see us through for his glory. Amen. I invite you to stand as you're comfortably able as we honor God by reading his word. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. Mark writes, on that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him, and they said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke. And rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? May God add blessing to us as people as we study his word. You may be seated. Jesus is the God of creation who can be trusted with every one of life's fears. As we come to this text and this dangerous point in the life of Jesus and his disciples, we learn first in verses 35 to 38 that obedience to God may lead to fearful situations. Obedience to God may lead us into fearful, even dangerous situations. And when, Peter call, when Jesus called to Peter and Andrew, to James and John and Mark 1, 17, saying, follow me and I'll make you to become fishers of men, when Jesus said to Levi in Mark 2, verse 14, follow me, I don't gather that any of those five disciples or the other seven that he would add among the twelve thought that following Jesus would result in them being placed in life-threatening life situations like this. 
And yet, it's precisely because they are following Jesus that, that in this passage, they find themselves in this fearful, dangerous, life-threatening situation. As we come upon this scene, it's the end of a long day of preaching and teaching for Jesus, mostly in parables. And there was such a great crowd, as we saw last week, to listen to him teach by the lake that he had to get into a fishing boat as a, a makeshift platform to preach from so the people could hear him and he'd not be overwhelmed by the crowd. And now Mark doesn't tell us precisely why, but at the end of the day, Jesus instructs his disciples saying, let's go to the other side of the lake. They're on the west side of the lake near Capernaum. He wants to go to the east side of the sea. And perhaps Jesus is intending to expand his ministry eastward by this move. Perhaps Jesus knows by his divine omniscience of the demon-possessed man that he will heal and help when they get to the other side. Maybe Jesus knows what he and the disciples will encounter on the sea that night. And he plans this trip because of the storm that will come. And what is absolutely certain is that Jesus never did anything by accident. And so even this decision to go across the Sea of Galilee on this night is intentional and intentionally in obedience to God's will, to God the Father's will for him. In any case, Mark doesn't let us into the mind of Christ here, and we don't necessarily need to go there. But he does tell us that the disciples who left their nets, who left their occupations, who left their family obligations behind to follow Jesus, that they do just as he commands and they set sail. They're obedient to him. We learn that Jesus nor the disciples bothered to pack an overnight bag on this trip. They took him in the boat just as he was. And that theirs was not the only boat that evening. There were other boats with them. Did you catch that? These are uh, two details that are probably not very, uh, they don't necessarily move the story along, but they're the kind of details that an eyewitness would add to the story as he is just remembering it. And so these little details give some credibility to the idea that Mark's gospel is probably Peter's recollection of his life with Jesus as told, and, uh, told to Mark and dictated by Mark. Peter saying, yeah, and by the way, there were other boats there too. And none of us had the good sense to even pack a change of clothes. Anyway, on with the story. Verse 37 heightens the tension of the story of the event very, very quickly, dramatically, almost instantaneously. In the night, almost at the snap of a finger, a great windstorm arises. A windstorm so violent that waves were cresting over the side of the boat and threatening to sink this small vessel. Galilean fisher, uh, uh, fishing boats were not large. They're, they're certainly not like the fishing boats that we see today, even the smaller ones that might do shrimping and fishing like in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, they were more like uh, the size of your average everyday rowboat, and the sides were relatively low to the water. Some fishing vessels have been excavated by archaeologists in Galilee, and, and the depiction of a, of, of a fishing vessel here in uh, Mark chapter 4 uh, uh, corresponds to what's been found archaeologically. Boats that maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 feet long or so, maybe about six or seven feet wide, low sides. So in a great storm, you can imagine how it would not take much of a wave to come over the side and begin to put the boat into peril. There's virtually nothing miraculous about this storm at the Sea of Galilee this night. Storms like this happen all the time. The Sea of Galilee is surrounded at most points by mountains, and so when storms do come in, the wind tends to sort of swirl inside this bowl over the lake, if you will, and, and create these squall-like conditions. These are not conditions that the disciples would have been, uh, that would have been foreign to the disciples. They, they would have probably seen and maybe even sailed through storms like this before. 
And while the disciples are here in the middle of this storm, out presumably in the middle of the lake, frantically bailing water and trying to row to shore and just stay alive, their friend, their leader, their master, teacher, Jesus, is asleep. Now at this point, amen. At this point, you may be hearing the echo of Jonah's ministry in your mind. That prophet, several hundred years before Jesus, was called by God to go to the city of Nineveh. But instead, he ran the other way. He got into a boat too, and he fell asleep in the hull of the ship. And that night, as Jonah was running from God, a great storm rose up that was hurled by God at the ship. And Jonah slept on while the pagan sailors tried everything they could to save their lives and the ship. The captain of that ship went down into the hull and found the prophet sleeping and commanded him, saying, Wake up, you sleeper! Call on your God. Throw in your lot with the rest of us. Maybe he will have mercy on us. So here, too, there's a squall at sea, a storm that is endangering the lives of these seasoned fishermen, such that even they are afraid for their lives, and the man of God on board with them is sleeping. Now, Jonah slept in the hull of that ship for his depression and grief over his disobedience to God. But Jesus sleeps in this boat, not because he's being disobedient to God, but in obedience to God to teach people all that day. He's exhausted. We see the humanity of Jesus on display, but also he's able to sleep in the storm because of his trust in the Father whose will he was following. The disciples in a state of panic rudely wake Jesus saying, teacher, don't you even give a rip that we're about to die. Wake up, look around. Why is it that the disciples find themselves in this fearful situation? Well, they find themselves in this fearful and dangerous situation because they've committed themselves to follow Jesus, who is himself obeying the will of God. Consider this. Had the disciples not decided to follow Jesus, they wouldn't be in this ship this night. And perhaps they're thinking the same thing. Grasp this truth this morning, that following Jesus, obeying the Father, is not a guarantee of your physical safety. Often it has been said the safest place in all the world is in the center of God's will. Yeah, tell that to the disciples who are about to drown in a windstorm. Now hear me, God is not like so many false gods who acts maliciously and capriciously, treating human beings as his playthings for his entertainment. God has not thrown this storm at the disciples on the Sea of Galilee that night just to like see what happens. God is not allowing the disciples to endure this storm because he likes to frighten people. He's not like that. Rather, through this storm and through their fearful response to it, God is teaching them something. I will not promise you that as you follow Jesus, Christian, that your life will always be safe. If you're here today not a Christian, not yet a follower of Jesus, don't ever hear me, or I hope you never hear anybody say to you, that following Jesus will be easy or safe or always pleasant. For these disciples, it was not. Jesus himself promised not just the 12 that followed him, but all who would come after him, that persecution and conflict and hatred by the world, even death for some would come if they would follow after him. Following Jesus is no guarantee of safety. But I can promise you that the Lord will always be teaching you something of himself and something of yourself in every trial and fearful situation that he and his gracious hand of providence might lead you into. In this case, God is teaching the disciples something by the storm. And what he's teaching them is that Christ commands their every situation. 
that Jesus is in control of their every situation. Verses 39 and 40, we see this. To know that Christ commands our every situation is a great comfort to us when we come to see, first of all, that Jesus, the God of creation, cares about you. Jesus actually does give a rip about you. The disciples plead with Jesus in the boat, don't you care that we are perishing? And without even a word to them, Jesus rises and commands the storm to be quiet. Our English Bibles translate his words rather politely as, peace, be still. But the words of the commands, hush up, stop it, are probably just as faithful. And maybe even get the idea across even better. Jesus is rebuking the storm. He's he's calling it out. He's telling it to shut up and stop it. There is, in Jesus' words, no magical incantation. There's no formula that precedes his command. There's no waving of wands, just words. Peace, be still, hush, calm down. And the great squall becomes, as Mark says, a great calm. Mark means to teach us something about the divinity of Jesus here. We've seen his humanity. He sleeps for exhaustion. But now here in this instance, we see also his divinity. Specifically, the very God who spoke the universe into existence, the God who said in Genesis 1, let there be light and there was, that God is now in the boat with these guys. Psalm 89, 8 and 9 says, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging sea when its waves rise, you still them. The Lord, Yahweh, God of armies, is in the boat with these disciples. And by his word to quell the storm, he demonstrates his deep and abiding care for his people. Yes, Jesus does care for you. The same God who flung galaxies into place by his word is the same one who invites us in 1 Peter 5 to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. It's so common for us to think, even me, in times of fear and difficult situations that God does not see us or that God does not somehow care for us, that he's somehow out of the loop when it comes to our present situation, our pain and suffering. It's so easy for us to cry out in times of real pain and hardship and fear. Where are you, God? Don't you see me? Don't you hear? Do you even care that I'm suffering? Jesus is not sleeping in the boat because he doesn't care about the disciples. He's sleeping in the boat because he has absolute faith in the Father whom he lives with in divine unity. It is Christ's faith, the Son's faith in the Father that lets him rest in the storm and not be afraid. It's the same God of the universe in the boat with his disciples who demonstrates his care for them by calming their fears. But what shall we do knowing that Christ cares for us when we fear? What about when hardship, pain comes upon us? What about when we are suffering? What about when our lives are in danger? What shall we do? Well, we should pay attention to the instruction of Jesus who instructs his disciples in the boat that night to temper fear with faith. You temper fear with faith. After the raging sea turns into a sea of glass at Jesus' word, he says to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Can you imagine the disciples in that moment? What, what do you, excuse me? What do you mean? So, what do you mean? Why are we so afraid? We're all but dead, man. And you're sleeping. We're bailing water. We're trying to row to shore. The, the sails in tatters. Thomas is crying in a fetal position on the bottom of the boat. 
Peter, if he knew how to swim, would have jumped out a long time ago. What? What do you mean? Why are you so afraid, Jesus says. He asks another question. Have you still no faith? And in saying it this way, Jesus immediately places fear and faith in an interesting relationship to one another. Great fear is the result of no faith. Great fear is the result of no trust, of no dependence upon God, for that is what faith is, to depend wholly upon God. In the presence of the storm, the disciples, doing all they can to save themselves, find that their efforts are fruitless. They they can bail harder, they can row faster, they can do whatever they want. They're still going to die if Jesus doesn't intervene. Their efforts to save their own lives are fruitless, and they fear for their death. If they had any faith, any trust in God at all, any recognition that they could not themselves be the source of their own salvation that night, but if they had faith that God was able, they would have had an answer to their fear. Not a cure for their fear, I don't think. I don't think faith eliminates fear always every time, but it does give an answer to it. Jesus' question to the disciples is not a, it's not a rebuke of all fear. Jesus is not saying that fear is somehow always sinful. We see Jesus, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he was betrayed, before he was about to be arrested and then put on trial and crucified, we see him in fear of his death, sweating drops of blood in the garden as he prays to the Father, if there's another way, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus isn't saying all fear is sinful, that if you have faith, nothing is ever fearful, But he's saying rather that the perspective of faith helps us to see fearful situations for what they are. Faith helps us put fear into context. Trust in the great power of God helps us to lift our eyes to the horizon to see hope and the hand of God in a way that gives us confidence in his ability and his intention despite of how afraid we are. We are tempted to think that God does not care about us most often when we see our problems as being bigger than God really is, or we see our problems bigger than God's goodness, or our dangerous situation greater than God's power. And this is the problem of perspective. Very small things, like like your finger held close to your eyes can appear to dwarf the the sun. You can even block out the sun if you hold your finger close enough to your eyes. Yet by experience, we know that that just holding your finger up close to your face or shading your eyes from the sun does not actually take the sun out of the sky. It's still there. So also, not even the greatest threat to our life, the deepest fear that we may face, can overturn the care and compassion that God has for you. Not even His perfect will for our life. Not even His ability to save. Sometimes we see our fears too closely that we, that we cannot see or are not able to see or don't allow ourselves to see the goodness, the power, the care of God, which is so much bigger behind it. Now this event in the life of Jesus reminds us of the divine power of Jesus and of the intimate closeness of Jesus to His people. In His divine power, He commands our every situation. Jesus is not asleep in the boat out of control. In His closeness, He shows His compassion to us, calling us to find our rescue from Him, to find our rescue in Him by trusting Him, by having faith, by depending upon Him. And because He is eminently trustworthy, we who are His followers should never ever doubt His goodness nor His faithfulness, nor His promise to save from the everlasting death of hell for everyone who trusts in Him. What do you do when fears and dangers arise in your life? How do you 
Follow Jesus' instruction to temper fear with faith. What about when danger hits your family, your home life, when your marriage is on the brink or deeply strained and seeming to break? How will you temper the fears that you face with faith? Well, you do it by reminding yourself that Jesus does see, Jesus does know your pain. He is intimately aware and up to speed with the pain of your breaking marriage. And he calls you to trust in what he has said in his word about dealing with strained marriages. Jesus doesn't just say, oh, just trust me, I got this, don't worry, stand back, you don't have to do anything. Jesus in his word calls us to do certain things in the context of our marriages that are meant to lead to their strength, to their wholeness, to their healing, even when they are strained, like confessing and repenting of sin. Could it be that your marriage is strained because, husbands, you have sin against your wives. You need to confess to them and begin repenting of following Jesus faithfully. Might that be the step to healing in your marriage? That, that the same way that, that Jesus has called us to be made new in soul and spirit, to be born again by faith in Him, that He might also cause your marriage to be new as you trust Him and obey Him by confessing sin and repenting of it? Perhaps you need to reorder the way you relate to one another in your storm-tossed marriage. By reviewing again Ephesians 5, 22 to 32, husbands making a renewed commitment to loving your wives the way Christ loved the church, pursuing her sanctification and godliness, and wives submitting to your, Christ, your husband's Christ-like leadership in the home. Maybe you face fear, maybe you face danger because your kids seem to be imploding in on themselves, making decisions that nothing seems to stop them from doing, destroying their lives Maybe, parents, your life isn't in danger, but your children's lives may be. That's, a, that's a, a fearful situation, a tempestuous situation. Remember in that moment that Jesus can be trusted. It may not be within your ability to save your children, but it is certainly not outside of His ability to. So depend on Him to do what only He can. When your children seem to, rebel, seem to be rebelling in hard ways, making life decisions and taking their life down a course of, uh, of action and, and in a direction that, that is all but godly, parents, as you depend on Christ to do what you cannot, you keep loving your kids and you keep praying for them. You keep trusting God to do in them what you cannot. What about when storms hit in culture? You might find yourself in a position at work or at school where to stand for Christian convictions on things like sexuality and gender and marriage bring upon you a storm of criticism, of maybe even persecution, maybe even financial uncertainty and insecurity. Will you trust the ever-present and all-powerful God to see you through that storm? He may not deliver you from difficulty, no, but He can certainly be trusted through it. Let us consider too, brothers and sisters, how we will ready ourselves to care for those among us who may well lose their jobs for standing firm yet graciously for the truth of God's word for us, his design for how we are to live. Let us be ready to care for those who are unwilling to cave to unbiblical cultural demands. Let's be willing to open our homes, our hearts, our families, our wallets to care for those who may be in a storm brought upon them by standing in the face of prevailing winds of culture. What about in actual storms? It's not very common to have tornadoes, much less hurricanes or volcanic eruptions or life-threatening floods here in New Mexico. But in many places of the world, these are legitimate threats. There are real storms that threaten people's lives. In the face of them, will you give in to fear for the loss of your life? Or can you confidently prepare and weather the storm with faith in the one who is the Lord of life and death? 
Paul gives us such great hope in Romans 14, 7 to 9. He says, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then we, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. There is great confidence to stake your life upon in knowing that, that in Christ, whether you live or whether you die, you are the Lord's. There is a storm, however, not so much in family, not so much from culture, not so much just physical, but there's a different storm that is brewing for each of us, a storm that each of us stand against because of our sin against God. And that storm is not a storm of natural origin, but divine. We may not recognize it as such. We might see the storm of our sin or the the way that we're living our lives in sinful disobedience to God as an adventure on the high seas. Baby, now I am living. This is awesome. What a rush. But there's an insurmountable wave that is headed toward each of us. And it is a wave of God's righteous and holy justice against our sin and against us who have sinned against Him. His is a furious storm that no ship of man can weather, nor from which is there any means of human escape. And it is a storm that should strike fear into the heart of each one who bothers to look at its coming. It's scary when your marriage is failing. It's scary when your kids are rebelling. It's scary when culture seems to be against you. It's scary when when there's a real storm that may be threatening your life. Friends, it is scarier still to know that you are opposed to a God of perfect holiness and justice. There may be no means of human escape from the storm of his wrath, but that is not the end of hope either. For because he is God, Jesus has within him all power to save from death those who trust in him. And it is God the Father's loving plan to provide a means of escape and deliverance from the storm of his wrath through his own son, Jesus the Christ. This salvation is not just from physical death. But the salvation that Jesus provides is from spiritual death. The waves of the storm that imperiled the disciples' lives on the Sea of Galilee that night are but nothing compared to the waves of God's righteous wrath and fury that are against us in our sin. But the frigate of our deliverance is the very person of Jesus, who himself endured the fury of God's wrath for sin in our place on the cross and according to God's will, so that he would be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith. Christ, the only God-man and righteous deliverer, invites each one to find their trust placed in Him who holds the keys of death and Hades, to trust Him to deliver us, not merely from the storms of life, though He may, but certainly from the storm of judgment due our sin. Jesus, the God of creation, He cares for you such that He died to spare you from the wrath of God and invites you now, be delivered from it by trusting Him. Following God is not a guarantee of our safety. But know that Christ commands our every situation. He cares for you deeply, and He has all power to deliver. As this passage closes, verse 41, we learn finally that there is a good kind of fear that comes from faith. There's a good kind of fear that comes from from faith. Again, verse 41 says, They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? In the same way that the book of Jonah ends with a question posed by the author for the reader to answer, Should God not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 100,000 people as well as many animals? 
It's a question that lands in the lap of the reader to answer. So also, Mark drops a question asked by the disciples into our laps, a question that goes unanswered, at least unanswered in the context of this passage here. In verse 41, we find the disciples filled with great fear. Literally, they feared a great fear. And they asked this question, who is this that the wind and the sea obey him? The disciples don't answer that question. Jesus doesn't answer that question. Mark doesn't even directly answer the question here, but he has answered that question for us already. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. We've returned here regularly because this is Mark's intention. This is his purpose in writing this biography of Jesus. He says this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of Jesus, God's Messiah, the very Son of God. Who is this? The disciples ask. What's the answer? This is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. This is who the wind and the sea obey, the very God of the universe. And while the disciples are asking the question here without giving an answer to it, it seems clear that they're getting very close to an answer. Now, the first time that any disciple of Jesus will recognize him as the Messiah will not come until Mark chapter 8 when Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ but already they're recognizing that he's no ordinary Galilean carpenter. He's been healing the sick. He's been casting out demons. He's been teaching with authority, confounding the scribes and Pharisees. And now he even controls nature. And at this demonstration, they are filled with great fear. They feared a great fear. What the disciples recognize and what they feel in this moment is what any sane person would feel if they were in the ring standing across from Iron Mike Tyson in his prime. To be present with someone whose power is absolutely arresting, but also terrifying if turned against you. Now, watching Iron Mike Tyson is one thing on TV. Man, that dude can move. Look at the power with which he swings his fists. But I promise you, if you were to stand in the ring to witness Mike Tyson's power face-to-face, that would be a whole other situation. His power is arresting. It's terrifying. If we know that it's possibly able to be turned against us, it is a strangely beautiful and terrifying experience to be in the presence of that sort of power. It is why when Isaiah saw a vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6 that he fell to the ground in repentant worship, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. It's why when John the Apostle received a vision from Jesus, the risen Christ in Revelation, that he falls down in front of him as though dead. To know who Jesus is, to know all that he is capable of, and to know that he is the God of the cosmos who cares for you, but who also throws knockout haymakers to hurricane force winds with just a word, is to know what good fear is. It is to know what true worship is, to see the full power of God on display and to know that at a moment's notice, if it were turned against you, you would be less than dust and yet to also know that he's good. This is the product of faith in Christ. This is what results from giving ourselves over to his control as we turn from sin and call him Lord. It is to know that He has all authority to lead us into fearful situations, but also to know that even those situations are in His hands. To be uncertain about what you may face, but to be absolutely confident in the one who is calling you to it. To follow Christ, friends, is to embark on a grand adventure of faith 
into unknown challenge and unknown growth and ultimate rest in his divine glory. That's what it is to follow Jesus. Not to just go to church. <laughs> Not to just live a, a different life. To follow Jesus is an adventure into challenge and growth and rest. It's a call to stand against evil and embrace what is godly. To follow Jesus is a call to fight fear of the unknown with the fearful reverence of being known by the Almighty. To follow Jesus is a call to stand for truth against a tide of lies and to protect the vulnerable from the abuses of the powerful. To follow Jesus is a scary call. It's a fearful one because it's a call to die to self daily and to live to Christ. There's a good kind of fear that comes with faith. A fear of God that replaces fear of man. A worship of Christ that drowns out the empty praises of the world. An awestruck wonder in the presence of the God of the universe that both makes your knees wobble and steals your spine at the same time. This is worship. And this is glorious. Who is this that the wind and the seas obey him? You can ask that question in fear and you can ask that question in faith and worship at the same time. Isn't that wonderful? What a joy to know that we don't worship a safe, vanilla, milk toast God, but one who calls us to danger for his glory and for our good. One who is in control of all things and yet at the same time calls us to hard things. Jesus is the God of the universe who can be trusted with all of life's fears storms at sea, storms at home, storms in the culture. And faith in Him leads us to a reverent fear of God that bolsters us against all other lesser worldly terrors. Jesus is not safe, my friends, but He is good. He's the King. He's the Christ. He's the strong Son of God, I tell you. Jesus is not safe. He leads us to the Father by a narrow and sometimes terrifying way. It is frightening to let go of self and cling to Christ. It is fearful to give control of your life over to another. It should cause your stomach to fly into your throat to know that Jesus is God of very God, unmatched in power and glory and might, who is calling us to follow him. But oh, what a shot of courage it gives us to know that he is good. And because he controls the cosmos, he requires us to trust him on this adventure of life with him as Lord. Jesus is the Son of God who can be trusted with every one of storms, life's storms. Peter Pevensey, after hearing from Mr. Beaver about the terrifyingly good Aslan, who is not safe, but he is good, Peter says to Mr. Beaver, oh, I'm longing to see him, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. Have you such faith in the goodness of Jesus? Have you believed in his awesome power over creation so as to also trust his power over sin and death? Will you follow him in faith? No matter what the perceived danger in it, will you follow him in faith because he is God and because he is good? That's the question to us from our passage today. Jesus, this one who is not safe but is certainly good, who can be trusted, will you trust him? Will you trust him to make you right with the Father? Will you trust him to, to patch up and carry you through the difficult and painful situations of life that may even lead to your suffering? Can you trust him? Do you trust him? Will you trust him? That's the question to us today that lands in our laps, that with God's help, I hope each of us will answer with a certain, certain response of, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I will. Let's pray together.